Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you so much, Wes. Uh, and it's just good to be here. And I'm really excited for these next, these next three weeks. So my family, um, so which camera do we look in so I can discipline my children from afar? <laughs> this one, this one. Right, boys, listen to mama. So um, I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. The two oldest ones are sick right now. So, um, so there's no way we could all be, you wouldn't want them here this morning. So the goal is, though, next week they will, uh, they'll join me so that you guys will get to, uh, you get to meet them and, uh, and interact with them. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just good to be here. Uh, what we're going to do, I actually have two introductions um, well, actually, first, one, you had Daryl, right? Daryl was here for three weeks. So this, not planned by any means, this summer, um, uh, I happened to preach after Daryl again. It's not fun to preach after Daryl. <laughs> and, and so I went up um, to a church in Payson, and Daryl had just finished, and so the pastor, he pulls me aside like he needed to tell me something, and he's like, I just want you to know that Daryl has a message for you. And I'm like, Daryl has a message for me? He goes, yeah, beat that. <laughs> No one's going to beat Daryl, right? This is Daryl. But, um, but I'm, I'm so glad you guys got to spend some time with him, and, uh, and, and I'm sure you know, he'll, he'll be back, and so that'll be good. Uh, but we have two things we've got to accomplish this morning up front, almost like two introductions, because I'm here for three weeks, and we're going to talk about prayer for three weeks. So I kind of have to set, set a little bit of the, the, the tone for the next three weeks, and then we'll pray, and then we're going to walk into then this week. Okay, so we'll kind of have two mini introductions. Um, Wes is a, a beloved friend, and, and I'm very thankful for that introduction. But what if, after that introduction, I also then uh, came up here, and my first thing that I said to you was, but, but Wes forgot one thing. He forgot to describe that I'm humble. <laughs> this is good. This is the response we need to have in this kind of a situation, right? The world... Um, the world has made it so that humility is not something to be achieved or desired because if you do so at that moment of your humility, you're no longer what? You're no longer humble, and then on it goes. Spiritually speaking, though, I want to change that perception over the next three weeks. Spiritually speaking, I actually want to change your understanding of what it means to be humble and my even goal is, is that you might actually pursue humility after these three weeks, maybe even after today. Like it would be acceptable even to ask one another about your humility, right? Even to compliment one another in their humility, right? It to be something desirable, but I've got to define what humility is first. This is what humility is. It simply says that I know who God is in light of who I am. It simply means that I have an understanding of that this is who God is in light of who I am. I think in that sacred moment where you're willing to admit this, you've now entered into the threshold of humility. Your heart is beginning to soften before God. Now, there could be one dilemma that kind of presents itself and it'll only happen in your heart. Maybe no one else around you will know this, but what will end up happening is, is then you go, well, I don't know who God is. 
Right? You have the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one being eternally existent as three persons, but I don't know who God is. So if I'm going to know who God is in light of who I am, and yet I don't know who God is, it makes humility a difficult thing to pursue. That's okay. That's totally fine. The problem, though, is if once that becomes aware, right, once you become aware of that, if six months from now you're still saying that, if a year from now you're still saying that, see, this might actually be the beginnings of you pursuing a greater understanding and a belief as to who God is. And some of the things that you will come to discover as it relates to knowing who God is in light of who we are is that then you understand, mm, God is sovereign. He has the right to control all things. You and I don't. God is providential. This is the means by which he controls all things. You and I do not have the ability to control all things, nor the right to control all things. Guess what? God knows everything. I know some things at best. Um, God is all-powerful. Uh, I have very little power. My kids demonstrate this to me all the time. See, but what you do is once you settle into this is who God is in light of who I am, what it does in prayer is it positions you in this humble posture because now when you go to God and you ask him about advice, wisdom, supplications, all of these things, you know what you're no longer doing? You're no longer holding them like this because now you know that God's ways are better than your ways. God's timing is better than your timing, right? God's wisdom is better than your wisdom, and so slowly, right, you begin to loosen this before God, and then what you end up seeing is that your relationship with God, as it relates to talking to him, it changes. That's my hope. And we've got three weeks to achieve it. It's a lot of pressure. But we'll do it, I think. So this will be kind of the outline of where we go. And I'll remind us along the way, so don't feel bad about this. Week one, like, so today... We're going to talk about confession. Don't zone out on me yet, right? I'm going to reposition confession here uh, in, in a very beautiful way, hopefully, because prayer is beautiful, and I think the most intimate form of prayer is confessionary prayer. And so we're going to look at this. Then in the following week, then two weeks from now, we're going to look at repetitive prayer. Repetitive prayer, yes. In a room this size, my guess is, is that some of you have given up on praying for something. You have declared it unanswered. You think you're annoying God. You think you're bothering him. You think that uh, it's clearly not his will because it hasn't been answered yet. And what I want to do potentially is to resurrect that prayer. So we're going to talk about that. And then in the third and the final time, we can't talk about prayer without talking about unanswered prayer. But when we talk about unanswered prayer, we're going to do so through this lens Yes, sometimes the answer is no, and we will discuss this. We have the greatest example in the Bible of, of, an, of unanswered prayer. So we're going to look at this. But in addition to that, though, I think a lot of prayer, a lot of Christian prayer has been declared unanswered prematurely because it didn't happen in our means, on our timing, through the ways that we thought it would be best for it to be answered. And so what we do is, is we declare it unanswered when God is saying, why are, why are you telling, I thought you prayed to me, 
why is it unanswered? Maybe I'm not done yet. And so we're going to talk about that as well. Sound good? So these are our three weeks, to which I'm greatly looking forward to it. That's the first introduction. The second introduction, and the final one for today. Uh, But let's do this, though. Let's begin by prayer. God, I love you. We love you. And we thank you for today. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you are walking this church through and the leadership and the way in which they are seeking you. It's evident, Lord. And I just pray a blessing upon this church in this transition. And whatever expectations a blessing might even be, I pray that you would exceed it. Thank you so much for bringing these brothers and sisters in Christ together this morning that you would use a collection of sinners like us to advance your kingdom in our own unique ways is humbling. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you display on the cross there for us. And we return to it often. And so we love you, Lord. Help me so that I might be helpful to these brothers and sisters in Christ so that in turn we all might go be helpful to those that you've called us to love. Amen. So when we're talking about confession, this is one thing that I've learned. I didn't grow up in a, uh, in a Christian home. I grew up in a wonderful home. It just wasn't a Christian home. And so I didn't have a, I, I became a believer in Jesus when I was in junior high. And um, one thing that I've learned, though, is that a, a, a great tradition in which a lot of uh, Protestants uh, come from is from Roman Catholicism. And by no means am I here to um, speak ill toward Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear me, please. But there are big differences in the way in which we operate religiously within our fellowship, within our relationships with God. And confession is one of those words. Some of you, coming from a Roman Catholic background, me saying I'm talking about confession, and you're already like, I'm out right? You begin to peel away. Or as my wife affectionately says, you start to sound like a theology professor, and I just stop listening. Um, I'll probably get in trouble for that one later, (laughs) but she's not here to yell at me. Okay, so, um, but here's what I want you to do, though. Resist that for a moment, because what John is going to show us, and and we're going to be in 1 John, to no, to no demise of what Daryl accomplished in those three weeks. I mean, we will, we're going to look at a different angle of this, and we're just looking at one chapter just for today, and then we move on to some different passages in the Bible. Um, but, but what John's going to unpack for us in this letter, this short letter, is he's going to show us this deep and intimate relationship, fellowship that we have with God, um, and confession's going to be at the core of it. It's going to be at the heart of it. And so I just want to show you this, with the hope that then you right, begin to incorporate this into your own life, and, and we're even going to end with a little bit of confession ourselves, not confessing our sins to one another, but we'll confess this sin to God, right, at the very, very end. That was funny, too, but you didn't laugh at that one. Um, okay, so here's the first part. We've got to discuss who is John, and I'm just speaking specifically with where we're going this morning. John has one of my favorite descriptive monikers in the Bible. He is described as the disciple whom, what? Jesus loved. Um, I don't know, when we get to heaven, oftentimes we want to hear, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. This would be wonderful, magical, right? We hear anything on our arrival. This will be the greatest thing ever, right? But there's just something so sweet that oftentimes, yes, I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, but there's also this element, this, this piece of me that desires, this is, this is the disciple whom I loved. They're home. So John had this, this, this description, and it's all throughout the gospel, so you know that it's John when it describes the disciple whom Jesus loves. John had a rich theology of love. If you're going to understand John, you have got to understand love. For him, it drove everything that he did and taught. So, in this chapter in 1 John, if we're going to talk about confession, I can guarantee you at the foundation of this doctrine of confession is love. The disciple whom Jesus loved wants us to understand that this thing that we do called confession is grounded and rooted in love. Where did John get this from? Well, I think John got this from Jesus. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, it goes like this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? They're doing this to test him, by the way. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. Another word for depend here in the Greek is hangs. Think of hinges on a door. So you have these, this commandment, singular, one, love. Love God and then love one another. And these two commandments, right, or this one commandment, this love directed in two different ways, kind of services as hinges of a door that causes this heavy door to suspend in the air. So all the law and all the prophets, 613 tenets of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, they all hinge on this command to love. Jesus is summarizing the law and the prophets through this greatest commandment. Now, if Jesus, if anybody, I guess, let's say it this way, if anybody had the, um, the ability to make something up, it's Jesus. However, he didn't. Jesus was just telling these Jews, these Pharisees, he was telling them something they would have been very familiar with. He was reciting a prayer to them. A prayer. This would have been a Jewish prayer prayed twice a day, once in the morning and then once in the evening. It's interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus getting away early in the morning and then in the evening to pray. I don't know what he was praying. My guess is that it might have been this, right? There's a chance, observing these things, that it might have been this, right? But it's this prayer called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6, starting in 4, and then I'll read through 6. It says this, it says, Hear, O Israel, or you could say obey. Obey, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Eusebius, uh, uh, a historian, uh, records uh, the life of John. And when he describes John, he's old and frail. He's the last of the apostles to die. And, um, and so they describe bringing John up before the people 
placing him right before them, and then John would simply say this, Eusebius would say, little children, this was common, this was an expression that John used, which I'm sure Daryl fleshed out, right? Little children, love one another, for if this alone be done, it is enough. And that was it. This was the man who saw some of the most amazing and radical and awe-inspiring, unexplainable things that Jesus did, and yet this is the wisdom that he departs us with. Love one another. For if this alone be done, it is enough. Again, why do we say this? Because if we're going to understand confession, I think, the right way, um, as John would have us understand it, it has to be rooted, rooted. Rooted is the mixture of rooted and grounded. It has to be rooted and grounded in this theology of love. You with me? Okay, good. So now we'll jump into our passage. It's right there at the beginning. We have 10 verses, and I'm going to walk through them, and at the very end, then we're going to sit and we're going to reflect on this a little bit. So it starts off here in 1 John 1.1, and it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So 1 John 1 starts off very similar to the Gospel of John. What I love about what John is doing, my description of humility was that you would know who God is in light of who you are or who I am. John is telling us who God is. He's telling us things that we might know about who God is. But if we go over to the Gospel of John, we see more. So in the Gospel of John 1, 1, and just a few verses, if we were to read them together, it would go like this. Remember, let's know who God is in light of who we are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this Word? Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Hold on to that. And the darkness has not overcome it. And so we continue. He says here in 1 John, 1, 2, the life was made manifest. We're about to celebrate this, right? Larry's coming home for Christmas. We're going to celebrate the incarnation. Lolly has reminded me twice in the last 24 hours, I think just to prepare me for what is to come, because apparently on November 1st, Christmas begins in our house. <laughs> so the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have what? Fellowship. This is a word you have to stop, you have to pause. This is not a religion. This is not just mere mechanics. This is not just things that are right to do or wrong not to do, but this is something that is inherent to our fellowship. What John is doing is he's not appealing to religiosity, but he's appealing to a fellowship that we have with God and with us, with one another. 
Hearkening back to the greatest commandment, to love God and then to love one another. And so, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One thing that we do when we jump into uh, verse five here of First John is I've got to mess around with two words. And if you'll notice, there's a lot of we's, right? Do you notice all the we's, right? If we say we have fellowship while we walk in the darkness, but if we walk in the light, we have fellowship. If we say we have no sin, we deceive. Do you get this, right? Let me keep going. If we confess our sins, if we have not sinned, we make him up. So you get all of this we language. This then leads me to believe that John's audience is not to non-believers, but to believers. It's to us. It's to the church. John himself is including himself in the we. It's not exclusionary. It's not just you guys are sinners, right? You guys are, no, it's we, right? And so what we have to do is we have to put two words up. On the one hand, you have um, soteriology, salvation, Okay, this doctrine of salvation. This is the process whereby you believe in Jesus and you are saved, right? But then you've got this other word, and it's rich theologically, but it's called sanctification. This is the process whereby me and you, we become less like ourselves and more like Jesus throughout our lives. But they're two totally different words. And they take us in two totally different directions. Do you understand? But what I need to do for us this morning, if we're going to understand John, is we're not going to say we don't care about the doctrine of salvation, but we need to kind of put salvation in its little kind of salvation box, right? And then we're going to kind of put salvation aside for just a moment intellectually, theologically. You with me? Because then we're going to come back and then we're going to discuss and we're going to read John's words in light of sanctification, this process whereby we become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. This is where you're going to see the richness of confessionary prayer, this fellowship which is brought about through confessionary prayer. And so let's start in 1 John 1.5. It says this, it says, This is the message we have heard from him, him being Jesus, and that we proclaim to you that God is light. So right off the bat, John is telling us where God is, right? God is to be found in the light. God is light. I was thinking through this, and one of these passages that I love is found in the description of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. This is why John says that God is light. And its lamp is the Lamb, Revelation 21, 23 tells us. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring, uh, will bring glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And so this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So you can see these polars, right? These polar opposites being, being, being shown to us through imagery, right? God is light and in him is no darkness. Darkness is tricky though. Um, darkness does something, especially as believers. Here's what happens. Um, my kids, one of their favorite things to do in the evening time is to have daddy lie down with them. And the boys have still made the decision that they want to they like share a room together, so they have a bunk bed. And so you got them both in there. And, and so they like when daddy goes and lays down with them. And so what I will do then is, is I get out my phone, right? And uh, I get them, right? You guys get situated. I get a lay of the land to see where all the landmines are, right? Where all the toys are. And then, um, and then you just got that moment, right? Where you turn the lights off and then it's super hard to see, right? So you're getting in the bed and then I can like pretend like I didn't mean to smack them, but I smacked them, right? And so we're trying to get in there. I got my, at best, my little phone light. And then um, what ends up happening is, um, is we go to sleep. And this has happened on more than one occasion where then Lolly will wake me up and say, hey, why are the boys downstairs? <laughs> I don't know. You told us to go to sleep. I'm a good listener. So I went to sleep, right? And so what we do is, is, right, we get the boys and we get them asleep and then give it enough time, um, I wake up and I want to go to my big boy bed. And, um, but what's, what's amazing though is, is my eyes, what's happened to them in that short period of time. They've adjusted. I, I can see. I, I can see everything. I don't even need my phone, Right? Caden's the upright sleeper, and so I can see him, and Ollie's the one that's like contorted in some kind of way, right? Often to the ear, like he's gonna fall off, right? But I can see it all. I can see everything. I can see the toys. I can see the doorknob. I don't even have to use my phone, but see what's happened is, is my eyes have adjusted to the darkness. Oh man, does this work spiritually? Um, we're sinners. And when we don't have humility, but we have pride, what we do is, is we take sin into our own hands. We try to overcome. We try to defeat. We try to move on from sin through our own means. But what we've never done, though, is just truly dealt with this sin other than just merely said, well, I won't do that again. It's okay. I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that doesn't happen again. I'll make those appropriate changes, right? I'll, oh boy, yeah, I'm yeah, that's, that's not good, and yeah, I can assure you, we'll, we'll, we'll fix that in the future, right? And so what we do, though, is, is you give it enough time, and everyone kind of moves on. And as everyone moves on, you think everything's fine, and then you go forward, but yet, see, over time, what happens is, is the darkness sets in. Your eyes adjust. And then you can just, we have some more sin to deal with. More darkness, more adjustment. And yet, before you know it, you've never felt more distant from God, and yet, and yet you love God. You desire to hear from God, you, you desire to experience God, and yet it just seems like there's this disconnect. Well, let's see what John says. In 1 John 1, 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
This is great because what it does is it pronounces and it makes a statement about who God is. And it also says something about who we are. And who we are is attempting to fool someone and to say we have fellowship while we walk in the darkness. And yet what John tells us is that you can't lie to God who knows everything. And so we do not practice the truth. But, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice, this is a very specific kind of cleansing. This is a cleansing done through the blood of Jesus. But what kind of sin are we talking about? Remember, this passage is about our sanctification, not our salvation, which means this cleansing is from sin that we commit as Christians. And then you get to 1 John 1.8 and 1.10. These are super fun verses because they're super bad news, especially if you're prideful. Prideful people have a problem admitting to wrongdoing or to sin in their life. Humble people, they're quick to admit such things. In 1 John 1.8 it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10 it says, If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So there's two ways to read this. One, you can see this as a challenge to overcome sin in your life. The other one is to embrace the sin in your life. Because what 1.8 and 1.10 tell us is that we are sinners. Still, even to this day, as believers, we're sinners. But here's the scary reality. When we admit to verses 8 and 10, where are we? Darkness. Where are we not? Light. According to John, where is fellowship with God? In the light. Why? Because God is light. So we've got this really tricky situation in which if I admit to 8 and 10, I'm admitting to probably not a great fellowship in this moment, right? The Lord. One thing that we have to embrace as Christians is bad news. We're not very good at this. We don't like bad news. Right? We don't like bad news, but as a result of not liking bad news, it doesn't help us appreciate the good news when we hear it. My favorite example is Good Friday. It's not Good Friday. God died. You tell Jesus that's Good Friday. Right? But what it is is it's Good Sunday and Bad Friday. But as Christians, we have to embrace the reality um, that we're sinners. And verses 8 and 10 give us that honest, authentic opportunity to admit such things. And the reason why John does this is because he knows the good news. He actually sandwiches, right, the good news around the bad news. You can't get to the good news unless you're willing to go through the bad news. And once you get to the good news, he doesn't want you to get prideful in the good news because then he makes you walk through the bad news on the way out. But here's the good news. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Check that. All unrighteousness. So there's two parts to this sentence that we need to kind of unpack a little bit. 
The first part is, is if we confess our sins. John is unsure about the condition of your heart. He doesn't know if it's humble or not. And so what he does is he puts forth the proposition, if you confess your sins, I don't know if you will. I don't know if you do. I don't know if you want to. Right? If you confess your sins. But then notice the statement that he makes following. And notice that it's descriptive of who God is. Because remember, the definition of humility is that we know who God is in light of who we are. And so here's my promise. If you confess your sins, this is God. He is faithful and just and forgiving. And so he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I hear you. If this was a, 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 a question mark, right? If we confess our sins, I don't know, God might forgive you. I get it. It's a little scary. But see, after this if is a wonderful and beautiful promise. And the promise is, is that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Cleansing here goes all the way back then to verse 7, which says that we are cleansed specifically by the blood of Jesus, his son. So really then the proposition is, will you confess your sins? Are you willing to admit verses 8 and verses 10? Now, never fails. Some of you are thinking, Kyle, this is very dangerous what you're teaching us right now because if I were to draw this kind of logic to its extreme, right, and I push it out as far as it can go, what you're saying is, is that you can go live however you would like and all you got to do is confess your sin and God will forgive you. Are you sure you want to bring that kind of a message to people, right? It's okay if you're worried about this. John, knowing that we were a little worried about this, I love the very next verse after 10. Watch what he says. My little children. This is, so this is 1 John 2, 1. My little children. It's not up there. Don't worry. It's in the Bible, though. <laughs> so chapter 1 ends after verse 10, and then the very next verse is 1 John 2, 1. And so what he says, he says, my little children. You remember Eusebius? Little children, love one another, for if this alone be done, it is enough. Okay, so my little children, I'm writing these things to you. What things? Everything that he said in this first chapter about confession and the blood of Jesus and admitting that we're sinners and that God is light and in him is no darkness. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John actually has this wild idea that if you love God and you love one another, right, and that if you seek to confess your sins, that it actually might develop within your heart a desire not to abuse confession, but to actually stop sinning. Maybe you wouldn't sin. And then it's one of my favorite buts in the whole Bible. But if anyone does sin, think back to verse 8. Think back to verse 10. Think back to our own lives walking in here today. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. So what this form of prayer is so beautiful and what it accomplishes um, is that it, it actually brings us into fellowship. We were in the darkness and we have a way back to the light. You can achieve this through your obedience, right? Through your perfect obedience. Good luck. I'll be praying for you. But if for those of us who don't achieve that, we have a way back to the light. We have an advocate to the Father in Jesus Christ as he cleanses us by his blood. As we confess our sins and then are cleansed of something very specific, this unrighteousness. It's kind of an interesting verse in, in the Gospel of John. Have you ever noticed how right after you sin, you know it? Right? And men, those who are married, right? Um, if the Holy Spirit's at all delayed, your wife is there to right, <laughs> expedite the process and the messaging. I'm in so much trouble. It's going to be so funny. So, but have you noticed, though, this is what she gets for not coming today. So, um, but have you noticed, though, that right after you sin, you, you, you feel it. You notice it. Like, it's, it's internally. You, something, like, triggers within you, and you're like, that wasn't right. That wasn't good. Now, I, I won't ask you to bring out these words to me, um, but w certain words then describe this feeling that you feel. Um, some people feel convicted of their sin. Some people feel embarrassed by their sin. Some people feel ashamed by their sin, right? They feel bad for it. Makes them feel less than, like, they, like, they, like they're just, they're never going to figure this thing out. So there's almost like this, this defeating, this feeling of defeat as we sin. And so as a result of this, um, one of two things happens. We either run toward God or we run away from God. And this is something that I learned from Daryl. He loves to quote Ephesians 6.12, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces and principalities of darkness. But see, this is what happens, because John tells us in his gospel, this is what happens when you sin, or why it happens. In John 16, 8, it says this, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he's preparing his disciples. I'm not going to be here forever. And so when I go, right, so when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, this is what happens. The moment that you sin and you feel it and you know it, that's the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't want a moment to go by longer whereby you're in the darkness when you could be in the light. The Holy Spirit doesn't want there to be a moment in which there's a break of fellowship in which you're in the darkness and he wants you back in the light. But here's the cosmic battle. Satan comes in and shames you shames you into thinking that God will never love you. He's had it with you. He's embarrassed by you. And so what do you do as a result of this ministry of shame? You run the other direction. You don't seek fellowship with God. Instead, you run away from fellowship with God because you actually have bought into a lie that he doesn't want fellowship with you. And so you run the other way. And yet all along, this ministry of the Holy Spirit was not meant to push you away 
but is meant to drive you toward God. Here's what's so problematic, difficult, if you will. They feel the same. They feel the same. So if I were to say, hey, tell me what this feeling feels like when the Holy Spirit, right, reminds you of your sin, and then you would all say things like in unison, right? Oh, conviction, shame, guilt, right? Well, what we're doing at that point is we're identifying that these things are coming from the same kind of seat of emotions. Like they feel, so what that means then as a believer is you have to sit. You have to think for a moment, perhaps even pray and figure out what's going on. Whom are you believing? Are you believing a lie of a devil which is pushing you away from fellowship? Or are you enjoying this precious and sacred and holy moment in which God is telling you that you're in the darkness? And before your eyes adjust, confess this sin and come back home to the light. This works with non-believers as well. Have you ever met that non-believer who says, there's no way I could ever become a follower of Jesus. Do you know what I've done? There's no way God could love me. There's no way you'd want me in your church. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. As we get into this moment of prayer, um, actually, you guys can even just get here now. You can just kind of, uh, uh, how, yeah, just for the sake of distraction, right? Let's bow heads, close eyes, kind of just sit with the Lord for just a moment. Here's what I want you to know is that God loves you. That God, when he convicts you of your sin, that what he's doing is he's asking you to come back to the light. But I also want you to be fully aware, not to be afraid, but that there is this ministry of the devil which is seeking to rob you of this fellowship and by doing so is drawing you further and further away from the Lord and from fellowship. And as this is accomplished, it just keeps us longer than we need to in the darkness. The promise remains the same. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here's all I want to do. We just get a couple moments just in silence, but I want you to think. Think of sin in your life. I did this on my drive here this morning, confessing my sin. Think of sin in your life and confess this sin to the Lord. If this is unfamiliar waters to you, it might just look like, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for this. Please forgive me for that. Thank you so much for cleansing me of this unrighteousness. And begin to name this sin and to ask for forgiveness. He desires to forgive you. So take this time. Think, pray, and confess this sin. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.